I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Rashad Malik Davis. Rashad is a 26-year-old creative, lover of stories, and storyteller. I met Rashad during my undergraduate years at Tufts University, and I've quietly kept tabs on him ever since. He recently published his first illustrated children's book, Carefree Like Me, one that I highly recommend reading as he promotes empathy, compassion, and diversity through a heartfelt story. In this conversation, we discover we discuss the painful genesis and healing journey of his book, his deeply rooted spirituality, and the importance of representation in the stories that we tell. I hope you enjoy. Before I talk more about Rashad, I want to talk a little bit about my long-form Sundays posts. You can find those at mnmwod.com, mnmwod.com. Uh, mobility and mindfulness work of the day. Uh, I'm back. I'm back posting these interviews. So here on March 19th, you, you'll find that I published on Spring Break Continued or the beginning of surgery. This week, I reflected on a very relaxing start to the surgery clerkship. I presented on death this podcast using the four prompts at the annual assembly of hospice and palliative medicine. Then I spent a day outside looking at poop while searching for antlers. Then this past weekend on March 26th, uh, I published on death revisited again this week. I reflected on death, the interview series, this one that has been a labor of love for the past two years, almost to the day in March, 2016, I interviewed my partner and now spouse Mackenzie Frost, now Kim. And ever since then, the podcast has continued to grow. I took a break over this winter to recharge the batteries and refill the well. With the vernal equinox this past week, I am ready to resume releasing interviews every other week. I have banked up a good gallery of yes, and I hope you are excited for the conversations to come. Back to Rashad. Rashad is a creative, black, a storyteller, and someone who loves big. Before Rashad dies, he wants his own TV show, his own cartoon, and his own studio. When Rashad dies, he wants to have left something behind that makes that made the world better and to be surrounded by love. After Rashad dies, he wants the people that rely on him to be set up and his people to know that he's okay. In conclusion, Rashad says, I'm going to speak to the people who are at the precipice of change but are afraid to take that next step off. For all of you who are on the edge of their dreams and are very afraid to take that leap, the next step past their comfort, I will let you know that where you are comfortable, the ground is not fertile. What I mean by that is when we get stuck in a sense of comfort, there is no growth. Growth comes out of us being willing to step past our comfort zone and being willing to step past what makes us complacent. I want to challenge you to take that leap past the infertile ground and to take that step into the unknown because the unknown is where you're forced to make change and forced to adapt and forced to excel in whatever you're doing because you don't know what you're doing in the process of not knowing is so important because we can't know everything. In those times when you don't know, that's when you grow the most. Then that's where you find the richest rewards because you're now relying on faith. Faith allows you to move into such beautiful opportunities that you will not have imagined in your comfort zone. So take that next step over the grass. This was an amazing conversation. I had so much fun. I'm so glad that this is this will be the first uh, first one since the break. Uh, so the break was a good break. The winter hit me hard. Uh, Coopersburg, uh, moving up to Pennsylvania from Tampa, Florida, 
uh, the first winter was a tough winter. You know, I'm, I grew up in New Hampshire, but uh, having to adjust from the Florida summer and winter to the Pennsylvania summer, then winter was a big one. And uh, it hit me hard and I needed a break. And so that's what this past winter was for me. And now I'm back, I'm back, baby. Ready to have some uh, to pre- present to you, the listener, to some really lovely conversations that I hope that you will enjoy. And I'm so glad that this one is the first one because there's so much laughing in this one. There's a there's a little bit about an hour and a half in where <laughs> uh, Rashad's uh, he lives with his mom, and uh, there's a lovely, funny interaction that uh, just I, I had to keep in because it's just so cute and uh, adorable. And uh, he, Rashad's awesome. He's uh, we we laugh a lot in this. We talk about some some you know some heavy stuff, some uh, an abusive relationship that he was in, uh, but that also formed the, the genesis of his book. Um, we talk about storytelling, the stories that he loves, the storytellers that he loves, um, and we talk about uh, representation. Uh, we 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 gaga go a little gaga over uh black panther the marvel movie that recently came out in february and we talk i don't know we talk about uh some some his experiences through with with uh with receiving messages from dreams with uh communication with uh you know the spirit realm uh and his spirituality it's a really really great conversation and um afterwards he called me he was like you know i i'm surprised that i opened up so much you're sort of like the asian oprah and i think that that was a lovely compliment one that i'm going to take with me in my back pocket whenever i need to whenever i feel low about my skills in it as an interviewer and uh i have i will include in the show notes uh links to uh rashad's uh website and also to the amazon page for his book carefree like me uh root the brave uh, chapter one and, um, yeah, I hope that you're glad and ready to hear some really cool interviews this coming spring into the summer. Um, I got like seven, eight guests now lined up. Uh, so that'll take us through, through June, uh, into July. And, uh, I'm just going to keep racking them up and it'll be a fun process. I hope that you are ready for, uh, some really great, great conversations on death and enough said about other people. Get ready for Rashad's uh, lovely responses to the four prompts on death. It is March 5th, 2018, and I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home, and Rashad Malik Davis is sitting in his Lawrenceville, New Jersey home, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Rashad, what are the four prompts? Sure. So the four prompts are, uh, who am I? Um, The second one, that's the first one. The second one is, before I die, I want. The third one is when I die, I want. And then the fourth is after I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? So the way that I would finish the first prompt is I am uh, a creative. I Mm -hmm. am Black. I am a storyteller. And I am someone who loves very big. Uh, I, I guess I guess the word would be big. I, I'm I'm someone who lo- who loves big is is the best way that I can that I can kind of put it. All right, all right. So first, I think on that list was creative. Yes. W- was it yes. a creative or creative? 
A creative. All right. A so creative. what? Why? Why is that a noun rather and, than an adjective? Oh, you're you, you broke up a little bit. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, why was that a noun rather than an adjective? Right. So I differentiate a creative from creative in that um, for me, it's it's a means of sustaining myself. It's like a bit. It's 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 creative, but with a purpose. So I'm not just like randomly doodling or randomly sketching. Um, things on the side is something that is my passion is something that's my career and I kind of differentiate I, I kind of differentiate it in that I'm, I'm serious about it as far as um, my work goes so you know right right now um, I'm working on the second book of my children's book uh, series entitled carefree like me um, and as much as it's enjoyable it's also work like I have to dedicate a certain amount of time during the day to make sure that I get it done um, and then I'm pumping out at least something uh, to get the to get my creative juices going. Um, otherwise, it just won't happen. Whereas if I was creative, um, I would just kind of doodle here and there and not really have an end goal in mind for me. At least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a. Um, have you ever heard of a of uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? No, I haven't. What's that? It's a. It's just. It's a very. It's an excellent book, and it talks about. Um, it's sort of done in like the very like Sun Tzu like uh, art. Uh, war of uh, art of war uh, style where it's like and his the main thesis of the book is that uh people need people are amateurs generally and and to make the switch from an amateur to a professional uh mm -hmm. requires honing your craft spending right. every day on your craft not taking any days off because if you take a day off you allow that stagnation that resistance to build up and to like mm -hmm. take hold of you and that resistance can take it manifests itself in so many ways and and like maybe a toxic relationship or um, the way that you have an addictive personality and, and the way to, the, the way to power through that is to just do your work. You know, I, I, I would agree with that so vehemently in the sense that, <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in the sense that, you know, for, for a very long time, I just completely denied myself, um, you know, the ability to work on my creative aspects. I, I, I kind of was afraid of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was afraid that if I were to jump into something that I love so, you know, fiercely, then I would be disappointed when it didn't work out or I would be, um, you know, too consumed by it. You know, I, I, I was basically in a poverty mindset of like, you know, the, all these negative things could happen, but then the what ifs never turned positive. And, you know, that that stagnant energy, like you said, mm -hmm. ended up... Um, kind of manifesting in an abusive relationship down the line. You know, I ended up in a situation where I was denying myself um, all of the joy and all of the um, the creative energy that, that I should have been putting into myself. And I decided to put that creative energy, energy into someone else, which ended up not being positive in the long run. So I, I, I totally feel that, I agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, a question that I have for you is why, why a creative versus an artist? Right. So, well, for, for me, the word, the, the word artist always carried this kind of weight to it um, <laughs> that, that I never really liked. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm an artist now, you know? Um, and, that, and that's just my own um, personal bias. But I, I, I like creative because it, it, it frees me up to, um, to, to be anything that I want, really. And, and I, don't, I don't like the idea of 
being stuck in anything or any particular place um, or in any particular title. So, you know, one day I'll be a caricature artist, tomorrow I'll be a children's book illustrator, you know, the next day I'll be a writer. Um, I, I like to allow myself the, the fluidity, that, fluidity that comes with the term creative, a creative. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really box me in. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to circle back to your book, uh, Carefree Like Me. Like what, uh, uh, I think it's a very interesting work and I really love the art that you did. And I love the, the, the heart, this heart that I can tell is in there. Um, what, what, uh, could you tell me the story of how it came to be? Right. So th this, this is like kind of off to the, to the far right, but, um, you know, when I was in that relationship, um, you know, I knew that I was in pain and, you know, this is taking a little bit back, a little bit further back, um, but I didn't know necessarily how to escape it. So I turned basically to meditation and, um, you know, in, in the midst of this whole process of like trying to move out of this pain, I started having basically supernatural experiences in the sense that, um, you know, one particular night I, you know, basically meditated and then I went to sleep and had two terrible nightmares. And then, you know, the final time that I woke up, I heard a male voice in my ear and it said, leave him. And I was like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, it's just my subconscious, whatever. Um, and then, you know, two more nights in a row, I went to sleep and I woke up at like three in the morning and I heard um, a voice say, leave him, leave him. So, you know, basically what ended up happening going forward was that I started getting, um, I guess she would call them visions or messages in my sleep. Um, you know, one, one particular night I went to sleep and I had a dream um, about a building that basically blew up. And in the midst of the smoke was the numbers 1557. And prior to that, I'd been wondering if I should go back to art school, if this was the right thing for me to do, um, how could I possibly afford this? And then I woke up and I broke down in tears because I looked up what the number meant and it said, now is a time for higher education study and learning, um, pursue, uh, you know, pursue higher education, basically. Um, and it just kind of snowballed into, you know, what I pursue now. So what Carefree Like Me is, is it's, it's a combination of things, but it's really um, a love letter to my own spiritual journey um, and to the things that I've learned along the way. And, you know, what it was, was that I wanted to teach kids about emotional literacy and empathy, because I, I always grew up a sensitive kid. I could feel everything. Um, and I was very hyper-conscious of that. So I realized that there wasn't really a space for men to kind of inhabit that world um, that felt safe and felt comfortable. So I wanted to create this fictional world where the main character, Amir, um, could be sensitive. He could be someone who um, was open-hearted. He was empathic. He could feel everything around him. And it actually was his superpower. It's something that enables him to traverse through these worlds um, in a way that most people can't. And, um, you know, his best friend, Nina, um, is the logically minded one. She's kind of a skeptic. She's the one who keeps him in check. So I also wanted to talk about the idea of balance um, and how do you, uh, you know, balance these very big concepts of emotions um, in the bodies of two kids and how that can be really interesting. And I think it is very uh, telling and, and powerful that uh, the, 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 the base of this story of this, like, children's book is uh is your own journey is like it is your process and it is you it is your own way of manifesting it and like turning it into something that is like 
something else, like like almost like judoing the like the the energy of that into something else, right? <laughs> right. And I, I I love that you use the term manifesting because it it, it really is um, a manifestation of, like you said, my journey and um, me honoring that and kind of finally I'm feeling comfortable with it because you know for a long time and even becoming an adult, I wasn't comfortable with my sensitivity and um, how I was so in tune with everything around me and the emotions of other people, like how I could literally take on the emotions of other people um, unintentionally and not know that I was doing it. And then wonder why my day was going so terribly um, <laughs> because I was around people who were having a terrible day. So, um, you know, I, I think for me, um, and especially interacting with other men who respond so warmly and so positively to finally having that part of themselves affirmed has been huge um, and has been one of the most rewarding parts of this project too. And uh, I want to dig into the the fact that this is sort of a love letter uh, to your spiritual journey. Uh, what uh, did you have a spiritual or religious upbringing to your childhood? I did. You know, my my grandfather um, before he passed was a uh, Baptist pastor, and um, you know, it, it it never the 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 Christian faith for me never really resonated um, in in a way that I felt comfortable. Um, and especially growing up and knowing that I was gay, I, w I, I always felt like, oh my God, you know, th there's, there's this big man in the sky who doesn't like me because X, Y, Z. And that was the message that I consistently got mm -hmm. that, or that there was something wrong. Um, so I, I did grow up Baptist. <clears throat> God, my voice is cracking like a 13 year old. Um, I, did <laughs> I did grow up Baptist. Um, but then as I got older, um, I moved more into the kind of like agnostic, almost to the point of being atheistic. And then I went through that really dramatic shift um, where I was able to, and I, I realized, you know, through my aunt, actually, I was telling her about the things that I was experiencing. And she was like, oh yeah, you know, on on, on our on our side of the family, they're very clairvoyant. And I was like, oh, you're, you're not, you're just gonna like casually pop that out one day. Just tell me that, <laughs> you know, we can see things before they happen. Um, and that's, you know, part of, of the things that started happening was that I started to see things, um, see events happening before they actually did. Um, and, you know, it, it was just like a whole host of things. So I really wanted to tap into the idea of um, a positive spirit world essence um, for this book project and um, do it in a way that didn't feel frightening and, and, and instead felt um, loving in the same way that I was introduced to it. You know, it felt very comforting. Like, yeah, we've got you. Like, don't worry about it. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's like my, so in my family, um, my grandmother uh, on my mother's side, uh, she was like, hey, I, I'm, not, you know, I still don't really know the full story of it, but she, she was very, uh, um, very spiritually connected in a, in a way that was very distinct from other people. Right. Uh, and she would, she would, within, within I believe, the Catholic faith, um, she would like heal people. And it mm -hmm. was a thing that was, it was, uh, it was uh, it was like my mom kind of would tell me about it. I was like, all right. But then uh, a couple a couple of years ago, my mom was telling me about, uh, or my, I think it was my dad actually. He was telling me about the time that she, uh, my grandmother, uh, went to our house, to our property in New Hampshire for the first mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just remember it was like this confluence of things of like some guy, uh, some like a uh, um, uh, feng, uh, uh, feng feng shui feng shui yeah. feng shui guy, but like the yeah. Korean version of that 
he was like, oh, this is a really cool house, but it's got a really weird vibe. And then my grandmother came and she, she, she spent a couple days there and then she ended up having a small stroke. And it was, um, you know, she was fine. Uh, she ended up recovering pretty all right. And, uh, and she's still alive now, but she's, her, her health is taking a turn. But that said, um, after that day, it was like the whole place was a different in a, in a much better way. Uh, mm. it, it was almost like, it was like whatever weird vibe was in there. It was, it was like the, the story that I tell myself is that she took it for us. Wow. And, and that, and that land is still to this day, like a very beautiful, beautiful place, but it's still, you know, it's starting to change. It's not exactly how I remember it in the way that when I was growing up right. and, uh, and you know, it's like maybe this stuff doesn't last forever. And, you know, with the development around, you know, things change, but it was just right. always been like, something that I've been aware of. Um, and then my mom has been very spiritually connected uh, through her Catholic faith um, through like these year long prayers. So it's just very interesting. And it's like you, uh, to have that connection, uh, especially in your lineage is something that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it is very interesting because I, I didn't realize that. Well, I knew that my family was very deeply spiritually connected, um, specifically through Christianity. But you know, um, tracing our ancestry back, I realized that we, you know, a large part of our ancestry comes from the Nigeria, Benin um, kind of capital. And historically, what that was, um, as far as faith was, um, you know, the world's oldest religion, apparently, which was Bodun or Voodoo, like in, in that particular faith. And though I'm not involved with Voodoo and, um, you know, those particular West African faiths, I do feel um, very connected with my ancestors who um, who perhaps were involved um, and did healing magic that way um, and did kind of ancestral, you know, spiritual practices. I do feel very connected to that. So it, it is very interesting, you know, considering lineage and, and how um, spiritual practices kind of perhaps skip lines or they just kind of manifest themselves differently. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like whatever whatever software you put on the hardware, uh, it's still going to express itself in certain ways. So like whatever software of the religion that you're talking about, it will the the hardware will find a way to manifest itself to to express itself, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and you know it's it's crazy because I, I ended up when I was in Savannah, Georgia, um, meeting people, uh, me- meeting two really good friends now who practice Ifa, which is like a branch off of um, voodoo basically and um, you know there's there's Santeria in kind of Spanish-speaking countries there's voodoo in Haiti um, and then Ifa is like the most I guess West African version of it and um, you know we, we were we were just all talking and they look you know one of my friends who's very spiritually inclined and works with all this kind of stuff he looks at me and he's like you're a medium and I was like what is you know I'm like what um, but then I realized that you know one time I was doing um, I, I do card readings for people essentially and one time I was doing a card reading and then um, I basically uh, got channeled a message got a message um, from somebody who had passed and I related to my friend at the time and she like broke down in tears because you know nobody knew that but her um, and the person who had passed so I was like whoa like this 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 is some intense stuff um, so anyway yeah it's a tangent. <laughs> yeah, I love tangents. It's great. They're some of my favorite thing, parts of this, uh, these uh, conversations. And so what is, your, uh, what is your relationship to spirituality now? 
Um, my relationship to spirituality is, is, is much the same. You know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, ver I'm very in tune with the messages that I consistently get. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the messages that, messages that I get now, before they used to come through signs and, and kind of symbols, but now I just kind of like get direct um, messages in terms of like, you know, for example, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of something that is, you know, kind of remotely related. Um, well, anyway, I, 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 I basically tune into a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, I, I do see a lot of number sequences. And, you know, for example, um, today and for the past, like, few months, I just keep seeing um, 777 all the time. Um, 777 um, and then a mixture of, like, 555s five, 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 and numbers basically indicating huge change. Um, so, you know, my, my, my relationship with spirituality and um, that realm hasn't changed. It's, it's just me being more in tune um, and accepting that this is just going to be a part of my life at this point and that I can't really push it to the side, no matter how sometimes freaky it gets, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, it's just a part of my journey that I just kind of accept at this point. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I wanted to comment on uh, uh, before talking about, before you move, change the subject is that one thing that I found interesting is that you were able to retain the, the memory of the numbers in your dreams. Uh, and the reason why I mention that is because uh, a lot of uh, lucid dreaming practices, so the, the practice of trying to be able to uh, recognize the fact that you're dreaming and then control the dreamscape. Um, some, a lot of these practices involve trying to read clocks or trying mm -hmm. to read text. And the, the thing about dreaming, uh, the, 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 the aspect of it that changes it is that when, you, when you're in a dream and you kind of like look away and then you look back, uh, generally in dreams, those things change. So they're very mm -hmm. non-static. So the fact that you, and, and you also have trouble remembering what you, what you read or saw. So the fact that you're able to recall it is, is an interesting fact. Like it is unusual that you're able to re recall those things. Yeah, that, that is, I, I had no, you know, I, I have no background in, and clearly this stuff that you're very knowledgeable, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it, it is interesting to hear, uh, you know, the, 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 the typical, um, kind of situations. Yeah, I, I can remember all those dreams that were like very clear messages. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I dream of a lot of animals, like animal messages as well, which was very interesting. Like I, for, for, during that string of when I was getting ready to go to Savannah, I kept dreaming of bears, which was interesting, um, and kept having the same message come through. And it was, it was, it was really intense, but um, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so the next thing I think that you mentioned, you were, you were, you are a creative, and I think the next one is you are black, right? Yes. Yes. So why, uh, what, what does it mean to you to be black? Because I know it changes for everybody, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I say black, um, not because I'm really hell bent on race or anything like that, but for me, you know, first of all, it's like the first thing that people will notice about me, mm -hmm. um, and it's like it's just very apparent. It's like, okay, you know, this is, this is who you are. Um, but you know, as, as my, as the kind of events of my life have unfolded, I found that, you know, as, as much as I would like to, as much as I would like for that to be, not be a factor, um, in terms of how people interact with me and in terms of how people perceive me, I definitely know that it is. Um, and you know, with, with that, it's it's also come with as 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 much as as much unfortunately um negativity that's come from it um i think also that there's also a lot of pride as well 
um, in terms of my own ancestry. And I, I think it's particular to um, Africans who were forced out of their homes um, and then didn't get a chance to retain any of their ancestral kind of practices or belief systems or anything um, except for their kind of physical markers. You know, blackness became and has become for many of us like the, the one link that we have to our own past. So for me, it became like a source of pride that I was connected to, um, you know, a particular place that has an ancient history and, and, and has um, and had history before colonization and had history before being completely disrupted and having um, whole systems destroyed, really. So, you know, the, there's there's that sense of pride that comes with knowing that um, despite me not knowing specifically where my ancestors are from, um, that I belong to a group of people who survived, you know, trauma that's unimaginable um, and still managed to retain a lot of the things that um, we perhaps don't actively say are African um, in particular, and in particular West African, um, but are, you know, so I, I think that's pretty cool. So I, I kind of wear it as, as much as a, as, as a badge of honor, as a, um, as a source of, unfortunately, a lot of pain from other people and something that's not self-inflicted is something that comes from other people who have their own preconceived notion about my blackness and what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of those uh, of, uh, cultural like uh, keystones from that West African heritage that you've, that they, what, like, what are some examples of that? Yeah, so it, it, it's so fascinating to me because a, a lot of the cultural cues and clicks that, um, come from, I've noticed, particularly West African um, dialect and speech as one of them. So for instance, um, I, I've only seen people of African descent and people who grew up predominantly around people of African descent do something called sucking their teeth where they just go, like it's, 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 a, it's, a, very, it's a very particular thing that I've only noticed from people from, you know, Black African kind of descended groups, like, you know, in the Caribbean, whether that's in America, but like when somebody goes, that's like, you know, like, like what, what, what the hell did you just say? What the fuck did you just say? <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's universal to, you know, to those particular cultures that I find fascinating. Like how did that survive, um, you know, being beaten out basically mm -hmm. across generations and centuries really. Um, but beyond that, like music, I think is pretty interesting because those things, and again, even though um, we weren't even allowed to, or, or my ancestors weren't allowed to um, practice music in a particular way, um, we still retain the rhythms that um, are very distinctly uh, West African and, and the way that we kind of um, do praise and worship and the way that, and the ways that we kind of do um, spirituality is very similar in that um, there's the call and response, which is essential to uh, West African music and communication. So I, I find that pretty amazing, um, you know, and, and just, I, I, I think the aesthetic and um, the, the, the spirit hasn't changed. So, and, and especially in terms of a, a kind of adornment and hair, I find that pretty amazing because, you know, West African hair and just African hair is so, you know, versatile, you can do whatever you want with it really. Um, and here we do the same, but culturally it's considered like, it's considered ghetto or it's considered like, you know, it's it's not socially acceptable. Not understanding that these these hair practices and these elaborate forms of 
representation are really ancient and we're just kind of re reinventing the wheel in our own way here. So I find that pretty, pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, how has, uh, it sounds like um, there was like a journey, like a, almost like a hero's journey in terms of your relationship to your blackness, right? Right, 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 right. What, uh, what, I mean, because, uh, okay, let me put it this way. I, I only understand it in terms of like my relationship with my Korean heritage. Like I, I, I never grew up speaking it. Like I, I, I lost, I have no connection to like my grandparents because they all speak Korean, you know, and they don't speak uh, any English and I don't speak any Korean. I only speak English. So it's, it's tough. Like I've, I, I like, I have uh, a similar divide in my, in my generation. Like I know where I came from. Um, right. I know I, I can see my, my sibling, my like cousins and my uncles and aunts, but I don't, there's not, I can, I can't connect to them in that, in that way. Um, right. And so, but going to a point of like me being able to ex like really be proud of the fact that I'm Korean and be like, Oh, it gives me an in with all these ethnic folks. Like I, I get to like slide in with, with, with some black folks over here. I get to slide in with the Filipinos. It's really great. Like it, it's like, I'm not white, but I'm not, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it gives me a lovely little, like, I'm like, Oh, this is wonderful. Like this gives me so much that I didn't know how valuable it would be growing up. And right. like, so that's where I am now with my Korean heritage. But like, where, like how, what was your journey like growing up? That's interesting. Um, and I, I, I would love to ask more about that. But um, anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> my, my journey really, um, you know, my, my, my parents were always very um, proud of their ancestry and very, and very proud of who they were. Um, but, you know, as I grew older, I, I didn't really have a sense of where I came from historically. And I, I think that having a sense of your historical past is so important mm -hmm. um, in cultivating your identity as a present being, because when you don't have a sense of rootedness, then it's easy to kind of float off and um, not have a sense that you have, you know, kind of, I guess, purpose, you know? Um, and so it started when I found an author by the name of Kola Booth. Um, her, her full, I guess, government name is Naima Bint Harith. Um, but she was a Sudanese woman who, um, you know, her parents were basically murdered in Sudan and she was forced into adoption because she was a dark-skinned woman um, or a dark-skinned child growing up in, in modern-day Egypt. And unfortunately, the racism and colorism in Egypt from um, light-skinned Arabs to black-skinned Egyptians um, is very present and very real. So she was forced into adoption and then she somehow made her way into the United States. And then she talked about her experiences being a dark-skinned woman within the African-American community um, and finding kinship, but also finding um, a lot of tension within the community because of colorism. And so I read about her journey and um, I felt this immediate connection with her because she was talking about um, slavery basically in um, Darfur and Sudan at the time um, was the topic. And she was basically describing what was happening in, you know, it was revealed in Libya, the slavery in Libya. Um, she was describing that, the whole slave trade that's still going on and um, was going on in her time. And it, it just struck me, you know, I was like, holy crap, these, these people who look like me and my ancestors are still going through the exact same thing, just in another part of the continent. And it, it just, it crippled me for a little while, but then it kind of made me dig deeper into my own ancestry and, and, and you know, move deeper into the historical, into the archaeological, into the anthropological, um, and figure out, you know, who, who are Africans as a historical body 
I mean, that's that's like a huge question because there's so many different ethnic groups and tribes. Um, but I really wanted to dig further into it, and it got me into this whole tailspin of uh, figuring things out, which was really fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that rootedness that you were talking about, it's important because it's it's you know putting into perspective like what is not just my journey, but what is the generation's journey? Like what is like what is my generation's role in this crazy wacky world like i know that uh like for me like my my parents uh they grew up in the aftermath of the korean war and i know my grandparents they grew up they they tried to survive the korean war and you know there there's there's like putting those those like like where are you in time not just in place is is i think incredibly important yeah that that's that's heavy and uh, wow sorry <laughs> <laughs> No, well, it's like, you know, the same thing happened to your, it's like, it's not the same, but like, you know, the same kind of trauma happened to your, to your family, like generations ago. And it's just like putting that into perspective, like when that happened and like, how far have you, have, have, were, are you coming from that trauma and that pain? Because like, I know like my, I'm the first person to attend medical school or to go to, to be a doctor in my family. And like, I know that the, the poverty that my father experienced growing up, like he he lived for a couple of years in a uh, in like a, a um, not an adoption home, like a what's it called when they, when a bunch of went bunch of uh, orf- orphanage, an orphanage, orphanage. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He lived in an orphanage for like two years because his parents couldn't take care of him. Um, so it's just like like that kind of like understanding, like oh, uh, I'm doing fine because compared like where my family has gone come mm. from uh is and where we're going is such a beautiful thing uh and you know like sure i get stuck in traffic and I get mad but I have to, like also it's nice oh. to remember those kinds of beautiful things right 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 yeah that that's heavy um well, well I, I had something to ask you too but anyway <laughs> <laughs> if it pops up you can think of it and you can ask all right okay, cool, cool, cool. um and so you are um you are a creative you are black is what mm-hmm. else was on that list um i'm a storyteller yeah what what is uh is is that something that's always been a part of you uh is that something that you've had to hone or accept in yourself um i i think it's more of the latter i i think well i mean you know i've always had to hone it and um double down on skills to make sure that my storytelling was um as good as it could be but um I've, i've always loved writing and i've always loved um you know, because I, I have siblings, but I grew up as an only child and I had a lot of time. And because there was like no Xbox, <laughs> there, there, there was, I mean, I had a PlayStation, but, you know, there's only so many times you can play a game. Um, Xbox Live wasn't a thing, so I couldn't play online and, you know, all that good stuff. Um, I, I really got a chance to explore um, my inner world and I realized it was just so rich and, and so full of, um, you know, whole universes that I could tap into and really put into play. So um, I spent a lot of my time creating characters and then creating the worlds that they would inhabit. And it was always that order, creating characters and then the world. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've just always loved entertaining people. I've always loved um, creating stories that shocked and amazed and, um, you know, were interesting to me. Because I felt like if it was interesting to me, then it would resonate with somebody else who had a similar um, who, who had a kindred spirit, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I think storytelling is um, such an is such an ancient and incredible skill to be able to um, engross people in a narrative and um, make them 
make 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 what's happening in your head relatable to somebody else is such is such a gift to me, um, and one that I that I don't take for granted, and that I really enjoy. Um, so it it really gives me pleasure when like at the end of reading Carefree Like Me, for example, um, kids are like, "So where's the next book, though?" <laughs> <laughs> I had the same feeling, man. <laughs> And it's, it's the funniest thing because adults are like, so I'm just asking for like my little cousin, my third remove. When is that next book coming out? <laughs> I'm like, ah, gotcha. Um, so which, with, which to me means that I did my job well, which means that I built a world and I built something that um, interested people, which is, you know, the most important thing to me. And, uh, and uh there's so many aspects of storytelling you know we have these like modern versions with like youtube and creating videos and and like yeah. video games and like that's an, an amazingly unique and such a specific aspect of storytelling and then there's um like the the old way of, of like sitting around a fire and tell just telling a story using your voice and the the pacing of your words and the volume and all of that and then there's also this sort of like kind of old kind of new in if you in in the large perspective of things of like the written word and and like right. your books and uh one thing that i think is interesting that you do is uh i know that you've been recently going like going to schools and doing live readings of it and right. so that kind of like merges the two it's like you're able to uh, have this kind of like new medium of the book and you're all able to incorporate the the old way of, of telling the story. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I think no, no matter the, the means or the medium or the method, it, it all pulls from that old campfire, you know, um, telling a story like we're, like we're cavemen. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's really about, um, to me at least, it's, it's really about engaging and engagement and um, you know performance, and I think that's something that I'm, I'm actually teaching a 10-week kind of seminar course at a middle school, and one of the, one of the, the the scheduled days is going to be about storytelling as performance, and um, you know what 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 it means to tell a story because telling a story is not just um, reading some words aloud and then sitting down and being like, I'm done. Thanks. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's the ability to perform and to act and to embody a character. And I, I think that's where, um, the fun of it comes from. It's, it's, it's the ability to, uh, the, the, the ability to make the unrelatable relatable. So I, I can tell the story of a 10 year old boy named Amir who gets pulled into the spirit world and has to find his way home. But that story, despite its fantastical nature, is being pulled from something that's very real. You know, the, the concepts of um, being lost, the, uh, the concept of, um, you know, fear, the feelings of anxiety, uh, what it means to be a child and to feel like you're kind of adrift. Um, there, there's so many things that you can relate to. And I think that's what people are drawn to ultimately with storytelling is how does this fit my personal narrative and how, how do I feel like I'm a part of this story? And that's the most fun when it comes to um, relating and um, why I think diverse stories are so important because when you feel like you can't um, locate yourself within the story and then you're like, okay, that was nice, but what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so did you have an, do you have like a role model or an example that uh, set uh, storytelling for you? You were like, oh, I'm learning a lot from this person or I base a lot of how I tell my stories around this. You know, I, I've, I've had so many role models and I, I, 
I'm 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 always inspired by <clears throat> uh, Studio Ghibli. I I, I love mm. their 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 narrative um, storytelling because th- th- despite the fact that they're dealing with very um, fantastical, magical kind of settings, they're doing it in a way that's uh, making the unrelatable relatable. It's it's you know telling the story of Chiro who you know gets stuck in another world and really can't get back until she figures out who she is. And it's that that's the story of authenticity and, um, you know, the beauty of childhood and um, so many things. And I, I, I think he's uh, here. Oh God, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> uh, anyway, his work <laughs> is phenomenal. Oh, um, Miyazaki. Yes, Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. Yes, Miyazaki is just a phenomenal storyteller and an artist. Um, I've been heavily inspired by Maya Angelou. I, I love, um, and, and in particular, her performance. Like her, her performance is very rich um, and her voice has story, which is like a very rare quality to have, something that I, you know, aspire to. to what have. do you mean by that? Um, her, her, her voice, like, and when I, when I hear her voice, I think of music. It, it has a musicality to it. It, it, it has life, it has, a vibrance that I think um, a lot of writers don't necessarily have. They, they, they'll they try to give themselves gravitas, gravitas or they'll try to give themselves a, a sense of self-importance. But, you know, with her, it just kind of like oozed out and you're like, oh, tell me more. And just like, <laughs> like what, what did you make for breakfast today? Just tell me. <laughs> um, and I think that's a really, uh, re- oh my God. And I can't forget the freaking man of the hour, um, LeVar Burton. Uh, reading oh. right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, I, I, I just li- finished listening to a podcast of his. Um, he, he does like an adult reading rainbow, basically. And um, he read the story of this alien who, um, he's, he's an alien assassin, and he gets called by this kid to basically um, stop the, uh, the, to, to basically find his sister's murderer, um, and it's it's just just it's just this really incredible tale, and you get so wrapped up in it because his voice is just so engaging, and you can tell that he's feeling it, and he's 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 no longer Levar Burton, he's this alien from another from another planet who has blades sticking out of his neck, like it, it's it's insane. <laughs> so a very very a, a lot of role models um, across platforms: video games, film, TV, um, cartoons, anime, all that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah, and I've I have a, I'll I'll send you a link to someone that I think you'll really really enjoy afterwards. Uh, Joseph Marshall. He's a uh, I think I forget uh, I think he's a Lakota Indian who was raised in the oral tradition, and mm-hmm. so he he has that full history of like oral storytelling, and like he he wrote this uh, a bunch of these stories down, and but and then he also has an audio book where he tells the story, and it's so beautiful. Oh uh, yeah. Good. But please, please, I, I would love that. <laughs> All right, so you are um, a creative, you are Black, you are a storyteller. What else is there? Um, oh, and I said I love big. I'm, 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 a, I'm a big lover. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How, how, because it sounds like you've gone through another journey with that, right? Like you, to, to be able to be comfortable to love that, to love so much is to be vulnerable and it's to, to open yourself up, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, like like I explained, I was in that abusive relationship for about eight months, um, and 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 that process 
I mean, I don't think I deserved it, of course, but I, I do think that there was something in that situation for me to learn. Um, and, you know, after that, I, I really struggled with um, loving again, because, you know, once you have your love kind of weaponized, and once you have, you know, the most sacred thing that I, I think you could possibly give to somebody um, becomes poison, you're like, well, holy shit, I, I, I can't trust myself, I can't trust anybody else, you know? Um, and I remember there was just one instance where, um, when I was in Georgia, <clears throat> very sweet guy, he, you know, we had met and I was like, okay, I'm going to commit to, um, going out again and, you know, being loved and all that good stuff. And, uh, he had surprised me because he had, he had, he had a whole date day planned. Right. So he brought, um, he surprised me in the morning with like flowers and a card on my doorstep. Um, and you know, most people who hadn't been traumatized would be like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't wait. Me, I, I literally took the flowers and the card and I went inside and I cried and, you know, was shaking because I was like, you know, every, every core piece of me that could love um, was rebelling against the idea of opening up again. And, you know, he, he was showing me love, but I couldn't trust it. You know, um, I couldn't trust somebody else's affections because the last time I did that, it was, um, you know, it wasn't true. And I was dating a sociopath, which meant that this was like somebody who was um, conditioned to do that. So I say that I love big in the sense that, you know, I, I've, I've learned to heal myself from that. And I, I, you know, through opening up to other people, through writing an article about it and sharing it on my Facebook page and letting other people into that journey and being vulnerable. And then having people reiterate their own stories and tell me how much my words meant to them um, to come forward and have the courage to do that, um, it really meant a lot. And so being willing to uh, put myself in the line again, despite having been through <laughs> that situation, really means that I'm kind of like a soldier of love of sorts in that I'm, I'm, I'm able to, my, my, my love is so big that I, I can't be held back by the by the wounds of somebody else and you know the trauma that somebody else tried to bring upon me is, is it's it's not it, it's it's not big enough to um kind of hinder my essence which to me is love mm -hmm. and uh yeah so a lot of what you were reminds me of this uh this like uh metaphor uh by aubrey marcus it's that like uh the difference between like a medieval knight and a Shaolin monk, like the, the medieval knight has all this armor, you know, he's like, you can't hit me as hard as you draw. Like, yeah, right. this armor's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. So strong. Uh, and then the Shaolin monk is like, you can try to hit me and it won't work. And mm. it's like that kind of like, you're not like, whatever you're trying to do is not going to really get at me. Um, but the, the belief that this armor can help can really hinder it in some way. Right. Right. And I, I had to learn that, you know, the armor wasn't doing me any good. It was hot. It was heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I looked cool, but um, it, it, it didn't really help me in terms of, um, you know, the, the core essence of me, which was to love. Um, so I was kind of like at in this internal war with myself of like, you know, how do I um, move in the world that's in a way that's authentic? authentic to me but also respecting the fact that i was that i went through trauma mm -hmm. and i feel like i've come out on the other side okay congratulations well thank you <laughs> you uh how do you think uh is there anything else that you are on uh in that list of i am that you want to talk about 
Um, I think I'm good. Yeah, let's start. Let's start talking about death. How do you finish that next prompt? Before I die, I want. Um, before I die, I want to have my own TV show. Oh, really? Yes. I, I, I you know, a, a part of that clairvoyance has always been, you know, ever since I was little, I, I remember seeing this. I, I remember specifically, um, you know, sitting on TV and being interviewed and um being in the realm of entertainment and always um being in a space where i was healing people and i was helping people on a grand scale um just with my words and just with you know the things that i was able to give naturally and you know it's interesting because i i, I did get a chance to go on tv for um news called new jersey and while i was on the t- while, while i was on the tv show i had this whole weird out of body moment where like, I, was, I was looking down at myself and i was like holy shit this is it um but in terms of what i want to do ultimately before i die i want to have my own cartoon um and more more than one cartoon and i want to have my own studio and before i die i want to um basically let people know that their stories matter and uh you know i i think that when you when you exclude people of any kind of identity from the narrative, then you subconsciously are letting that person know that their story doesn't matter. And I don't think that that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, there's so much we can talk about from here. So we can talk <laughs> about uh, like what, uh, like what cartoons, uh, like what kind of animation really is like, what kind of like, what, what were you aiming for? Like, uh, is it like a Samurai Jack? Is it like a Naruto? Is it like, you know, what, right. where, you're like, where are you going with that? And then I can also talk about like the representation and we can nerd out about like Black Panther. And uh, like how I know, right? (laughs) So, like, where do you want to go with this? Where do you want to go with this first? Okay, so as far as my own dreams, um, I really want to turn Carefree Like Me into an animated series. Um, I think, you know, it's it's kind of like prime real estate in terms of you know the topic and the engagement and. Um, the fun of it all. I think I've, I've always been an adventure nerd. So when you said Samurai Jack, I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I grew up on cartoons. So I always loved um, things like the Rugrats and um, Hey Arnold and things, you know, th- 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 those weren't, th- the term is called uh, serial when it's like a, like a progression of a story. So like Avatar was a serial TV show. Um, whereas uh, uh, Hey Arnold or Rugrats, that was more like Slice of Life. It was just random episodes and anecdotes that don't have a particular storyline. Um, I've always been interested in the serial stuff. I, I've always loved stories that felt like they had a definitive end. And that's kind of what I want to pursue. So I would want to do things that were along the lines of, you know, along the lines of Samurai Jack, where it's like action, adventure, um, and, and it has to be 2D because I grew up on 2D um, <laughs> animation. I don't want to do the, that, that 3D stuff. That's that, that's blasphemy to me. Um, but uh, yeah, so it would have to be 2D animated. It would have to be something like action, adventure. Um, it would have to be um, related to fantasy and spirituality for me, because that's always what I've been interested in, kind of like Studio Ghibli, dealing with things of uh, a fantastical nature. Yeah, so that, that's that's kind of the, the long-term goal. The vision, the, the, the long, yeah, all right, all right, good stuff. And now let's talk about the representation. Like, why, like, uh, like I, 
like what what uh why is representation so important for you and then like we you can dive into the black panther if you'd like as well yeah yeah so um re representation is just so important on so many levels um you know growing up i distinctly remember seeing a cartoon uh, a cartoon film called baby's kids and um you know it was like the first black cartoon that i had ever seen and i was like holy shit like i can have a cartoon about me like this is so cool um but you know what, what i didn't know was that that was setting up the stage for me in terms of um what i thought was possible and and, and the things that i thought were um that, that i was capable of so you know i i think representation is like a mirror and um I think that our entertainment, and I, I got I got this quote from my friend Talia, and I loved it. And so I, I think that media and our entertainment should be a mirror and a window. So a mirror in the sense that it, it reflects all of the things that we want to have reflected about ourselves, but a window in the sense that it also allows a stranger to look in and be like, oh, wow, your story is really cool. So, um, you know, I think besides Black Panther, like Coco, um, which won an award last night, that was so incredible because um, I, I could see how my, you know, Latinx friends were just so um, enthused and so excited, particularly my Mexican friends. They were like, yes, yes, I'm here. Like, I matter, you know? Um, and so for me, it was a window, um, but for them, it was a mirror. So I really love seeing that. And then Black Mother <laughs> Evan Panther. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really still processing that movie, um, because the magnitude of what that was was just like, you know, was was just so incredible. And and I think on a global scale, if 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 the if the money is not an indication yet, um, I think it's like what is it, eight hundred and sixteen million or something like that now, or like it something made, ridiculous. It made more in three days than Justice League made in its whole run. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that's also just because DC is like, <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least their movies are like, eh. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, you know, Bl Black Panther was just so incredible because for the first time, I think you had this imagined world where it was possible for an African nation to be sovereign and it was okay for Black blackness to be celebrated um and to be normalized and to be considered normal and to just be regular and just beautiful you know i i think that was a huge thing i think um for the first time black beauty was something that was on display and was normal and it wasn't like oh you're just the token black guy that we consider attractive it was like no you had a whole nation of really sexy people um, who just happened to be black, you know? So I, it, it was it was such a monumentous moment. And um, to have that be told in a superhero form, um, and, I, and the reason I, I love superheroes because superheroes are, are modern day mythology, you know, in, in the way that um, ancient mythology kind of capitalized on the best and the worst qualities of humanity and tried to get a moral um, kind of nugget out of the storytelling. I think that's what superheroes are for us. Like, you know, what what happens when your superheroes are just Wonder Woman, um, Kal El, very very the typical American dream, um, but then versus what happens when you have a superhero 
who is black? What happens if you have a superhero who's gay, who's Asian, who's you know, who, who's trans, who's Native American? You know, I think um, when you start to include um, these identities in the fabric of what it means to be a superhero, then you know you create this really cool world. Hold on one second. Yes. <laughs> what? The windows down? Um, I, I'm I'm doing an interview. Could you, is it possible to roll it up? The key is downstairs. <laughs> what? You heard me. I should have said, Mom, where's the meatloaf? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something sounds like never changes, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is, my friends always laugh because my, my mom and I communicate via like the screams throughout the entire house. You know, she's on the second floor, I'm on the third. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna be all, you're getting an authentic interview. So yes, like, we are. Yes, we are. So uh, can you remember at all where you were before that? <laughs> um, I was I was talking about uh black beauty and how it was very rare and how much you know I think it meant for um you know African descended people kind of like across the globe and that was really cool because I I, I was I was curious what Black Panther meant for Africans who had never left the continent. Um, but that that same sense of pride was there. It was like, holy shit, like we, we could be, we could be, and I think Africa itself has suffered from um, poor PR, you know? It's like the, the, the image is always starving. It's always dead and dying people with huge bellies. And, you know, it, 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 it doesn't show, that, that, that's, that's like showing the worst, the, the, you know, the worst possible situation in any given community and being like, this is Lawrenceville. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's definitely down on 23rd. What do you mean? Um, so I, I think this, this movie was powerful in the ways that it, it got a chance to rewrite the narrative and, and rewrite um, African descendant people's stories um, in a way that was done by us for us. It was really cool. Um, but also it allowed other people who weren't African descended to really kind of um, bask in the cultures and the histories and um, the people that, and I, I just loved it. And it, it was, uh, I could just go on and on about it. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah, just uh, my, like my two things are like that, it, like the, it was so well written and oh, yes. very complex and it showed the, yeah, I think it did a marvelous job of showing that um, that African American African divide that exists, and yeah, I, yeah. I and I know that there were some lines that uh, I've you know from like Reddit that like landed for some people that just totally missed me. Like I and it's like that's that's the purpose of making a movie that has representation is like there are jokes that are not supposed to land for you right like in coco like the grandma with the shoe i was like dying because i kind of understood it but i know that like the latin people were, were dying right she weaponized the shoe and then there were things there were lines in black panther that were like that resonated with other folks like the um 
I think it was, uh, I, I, it totally went over my head, but when Killmonger was saying like, uh, I was this like poor black kid in Oakland being told these fairy tales. Mm. And like, I, I like kind of was like, oh, that's a cool line. But like, I know that it landed for other people differently. And I think that's right. important. Oh, right. Yeah, no, the, 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 there was so much that was, the film kind of read and was written like a love letter to, um, to people across the diaspora because, you know, you, you have the story of Wakanda, right? Mm-hmm. Story of um, this African sovereign nation who had the ability really to end the whole slave trade, um, but they were like, "Nah, we're good." You know that that's that that's their problem. Um, we are Wakandan and they're whatever. Um, and then you have you know the forgotten children of this trauma, uh, who would be African Americans, kind of Caribbean, you know, black folks, and then people in Europe and London, um, you know, being like. But we belong to you, but you, we, 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 we don't matter to you. And I, I think it was such a beautiful way of showing that divide and, and, and opening up that conversation for um, reconciliation. And, you know, th- there was an article that I read um, that was really powerful. And he was, um, this, this guy, he was a Nigerian king. And I think it was after the film. And um, he, he, he belonged to um, a, basically a, a, a province or a township that was known for selling its own brothers and sisters into slavery. Um, and his bloodline was directly responsible for um, a lot of lost African, you know, kind of slaves to the slave trade. And so he did, um, he, he did basically a ritual in voodoo. Um, invoking those ancestors and being like, I am so sorry, and like crying and like breaking glass, like breaking rum over. Um, they, they found an abandoned um, slave ship that was hundreds of years old, um, washed up on the shores of like some river or lake. And, um, you know, he basically poured libations over it and did a really powerful ritual over it and was like, I'm so sorry, in his language, and was like singing over it. Um, because he belonged to the bloodline that directly was associated with them getting sold. Um, so, you know, th- th- things, you know, people, people will say what they will say about this movie, but I think it, it was such an incredible um, entryway and such an incredible kind of um, culture jumpstarter uh, to get the conversation started about how do we go about reconciling the, the divide and this huge literal gap between people in the diaspora across the Atlantic into West Africa specifically. I mean, it was like Central Africa, South and, and West, um, and so as far as the slave trade goes, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it, was, it was powerful, man. Like, the whole movie was just like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm sure. I couldn't imagine. And so, so bringing it back to you and, and the work that you want to do before you die, um, is it is it a matter of like you want a legacy of like oh I did these things and they're out in the world or is it more that you want to create these sort of reverberations um, of, of representation and of of authenticity and in, in your work and that's sort of what you want to have happen? Yeah, the more, you know it's it's the latter for sure. I, I you know my my goal has never been to just pump something out and say that I did it and just you know be kind of admired for the fact that I did it. I, I, I want to be um, remembered and, I, and I, I want the work to stand on its own as a testament to um, not just diversity, but you know, the human spirit, because I think that regardless of, of our differences and, and despite the things that kind of 
pull us apart, um, we we are one in a very real sense. Um, and that, you know, the, the trauma that one person faces is something that affects us all in a very intimate way. Although we might not be consciously aware of it, um, I think that on a very spiritual level, we are all very connected. So um, I want to create stories that um, sure represent um, the gamut of human existence um, and be able to um, foster and assist in helping people from diverse backgrounds create these stories. But you know, ultimately, what I what I want to do with these stories is show our um, our connectedness and show that despite you know where we come from and and how we may differ in small ways, um, the essence of our humanity is the exact same. And it's kind of like jealous together. <laughs> Good stuff. And uh, is there anything else that you want before you die? Um, I have so many things, but I, I, I think that the, that, 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 that the larger um, message that I kind of want to take away is to just let people know um, that there's more that unites us than divides us, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that'll be the, the stronger expression of like that creativeness inside you. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what comes. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So uh, how do you finish the next prompt, When I Die, I Want? When I die, I want. When, when, when I die, I want um, to have left behind. When, when, I, when I die, I, I want to have left behind something that made the world a little bit better. And I, I know that that sounds like super cliche, but, um, you know, there's, there, there's, so, there's so many ways and so many methods for us to leave the world worse off. Um, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon every individual to find a way to make the world more beautiful than how you, than, than how you found it. And um, I, I would also say when I die, I want to be surrounded by the people that um, have meant the most to me and have kind of uh, ushered me and, and kept me um, and, and kept me moving in a, in a positive and, and loving manner. And, you know, to be surrounded, you know, I, I, I just I just want to be surrounded by love, man. I think I think that's the I think that's the biggest thing um, to be surrounded by love and to know that I I help someone to love better or um love themselves better or love somebody else better i think that's kind of my ultimate goal and what i think my soul kind of came to this earth to do is there has there been a death that has affected you greatly and uh informs you either positively or negatively on on your death experience mm. um i would say you know the the, the death of my Actually, yes. Oh, the, the death of my of my grandfather and my grandmother. Um, my, my grandmother, you know, passed before I was even alive. Um, but my grandfather, you know, he passed when I was a teenager, like early teens, maybe. And um, you know, with my grandmother, I never got a chance to meet her. But because, like I mentioned, I've always been so spiritually inclined, I could always feel her around me. Um, and I could always kind of feel her guidance and, you know, interpret the messages that would come through from her very specifically. And I, and I would always know it was her, I'd be like, hey, grandma, you know, um, just kind of like, hey, I know you're there. Um, but I, I've, I've always felt her love keep me and kind of surround me and, and, you know, move me forward. 
And then as far as my grandfather goes, you know, I just, when he passed, I, I just saw how many people loved him and I, I saw how many people um, admired him. And, you know, I, I, he, he, he wasn't a perfect human being by, by any me measurement of the word, but um, I saw that at the end of his life, he had united more people than he had divided. And I think mm. that was um, pretty significant because, you know, like I said, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to um, sow discord and dissent among people. It's, that, that's not a difficult thing to do, but it's much harder to, to have brought people together and let, and, and, and in your last moments on earth, you know, um, create a space of love. And I think that's what he did. And I, that something, and that was something that I, that I always admired. And he, and he left behind, um, you know, a family of people who were artistically gifted, musically gifted. Like my cousins, um, one, one of my cousins, he's like a very well-known gospel singer, um, Al Jaron, right? And he performs across the United States. It was just on TV. And then two of my other cousins, um, they play drums for like Miguel, Jennifer Hudson, um, like all of these really big name artists. And, you know, th this is the gift that he left behind. He left behind his love and his talent and um, his passion. So, you know, I'm, I'm always grateful for it. And my mother always jokes, she's like, she's like, so much like your grandfather in terms of, you know, how you, how you just don't really care about what other people think because he was not very interested in what other people thought about him um, and really marched the beat of his own drum. And, um, and I think, I, I admire him for that being a black man growing up at, in the times that he did to have your own um, particular drum beat, I feel like was very difficult. And he did it. He was like, well, screw all y'all. I'm gonna live my life. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it with grace and left behind so many great things. And that's kind of what I want to do as well. And uh, have you uh, thought much about the moment of your passing of what you would want that to look like or feel like? You know, I've, I've always seen myself in, you know, just somewhere comfortable. And I, I, and, and I don't know if this is the clairvoyant in me or if this is just like, you know, the hopeful artist in me. But I've always seen myself kind of like laying down in like a bed or something um, surrounded by people. And I just see like a lot of light streaming in. I, I, feel, I feel the warmth and I can just see... Um, people basically letting me know like it's okay for you to let go at this point um because it, it's because you've you've done everything that you possibly could have done and um you know I I just see it being like okay I'm out deuces and you know <laughs> just kind of like slipping into the ancestors realm and uh you know I, I just see it being very peaceful and being something that's full of love and I I, I feel that in a very intuitive and real way for myself so I think that's what that moment will be like. It's like, well, I guess it's time to go on. Like, I'll see y'all soon type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like more of a release than it is like a grasping for anything. Exactly, exactly. I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be like, I'm, I'm desperately trying to cling to life. I think I'll, I'll have reached that point where I'll be like ready and it's time for me to move on to the next step of, um, of whatever is to come next and just be at peace with it and know that wherever I'm going next is like fine. So let's talk about that. Uh, how do you finish the next prompt after I die? I want. Ooh. So are, are you talking about like my like conception of life after death or is it kind of like. It's whatever. How, so there, there are multiple ways that people can approach this. They, you know, they'll approach it from the, from the people that are left behind. What do they want for them? 
mm. or uh, I approached it from the like the greater earth biome, or you can also approach it from the your person like what will what will the afterlife be like? Sure, sure. So to I I, I think I guess I'll address the first point that you made. So um, after I die, I want first of all the people who um, were relying on me either financially or kind of emotionally, I, I want them to be set up. I want them to be okay. Because um, I feel like that's like the worst thing to, you know, pass away and then leave the burden of financial whatever um, to fall upon these people who may or may not have the means to keep themselves afloat with, uh, with the added burden of whatever you're going through. So I want to make sure that that's settled and done. And then um, I want... I, I, I want them to know that, you know, that, that I'm okay, basically, that, that it's, 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 it's not like I'm um, in pain or whatever. It's just like, I just had to go. And, and that was it. Um, and then I guess my, my own personal conceptions of the afterlife is, you know, I, I, I totally believe in the concept of a spirit world. And I think, um, you know, the, the the idea of of heaven and hell never resonated with me, um, but what more so resonated with me was the concept of our souls going to a place of um, of home essentially, like we, like we return to this essence of love, and we return to this. I guess it's kind of like heaven, but but we return to this essence of 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 oneness where there's no separation, there's no me, there's no you, there's no black, there's no white. It's just like we return to the source energy, which to me um, encompasses everything and, you know, kind of encompasses even our living existence, you know, in this human experience that we've gone through. Um, I think it encompasses all of that, but we're just not consciously aware of it. So I think we kind of return to that. And I'm, I'm very much a believer in our reincarnation and, you know, the idea of once this life is up, we move on to, you know, if, if, if we haven't completed the things that we need to complete, um, we move on to another life to learn the lessons um, that we need to learn in that particular life. So, um, and it was interesting. I, I, I did, you know, because, because I do card readings and stuff, um, one of the messages that I got from spirit or whatever you want to call it um, was basically to go to a past life regressions. And I was, I was like, okay, let me look it up. And it was like 300 bucks. I'm like, you're funny. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were really insistent, um, but I didn't listen. And instead they pointed me instead to um, a past life card deck. So, you know, I've, I've always felt like in a past life, I was a woman and that, um, you know, I, I always had a very particular connection with Egypt. Like I, I was always very drawn to that. Um, Egypt and East Asia, but I'm, I'm not sure what the East Asian connection is, but I knew Egypt in particular. So um, as I was like, as I was pulling these cards out, I, I had like a vision um, of a woman and she was at the edge of a desert and she was looking out onto it and she felt incredibly depressed and alone and scared, but, you know, kind of determined to find what was on the, to find what was on the other edge of that. So um, I pull the cards out and it talks about uh, priest or priestess. I remember the cards. It's priest or priestess, monk or nun, uh, biblical times, um, the arts and something like that. And then 
I was told to basically pull another row of, of cards, um, and this time for the person who she was interacting with. So it was um, Greco-Roman, it was uh, battles and wars, it was ships, it was leaving, and then something else. And so immediately I had this whole flood of a memory and I like broke down into tears. So basically, um, long story short, in this past life of mine, I was an Egyptian priestess who fell in love with a um, Greco-Roman soldier and I got pregnant and um, I basically had to escape into the desert. And so things kind of got blurry there. So my best friend now, Nina, and the other per the other character in my book, Nina, um, you know, she and I have been best friends since I, we, we were like literally nine. And, um, you know, I pulled some cards for her. And she's like, huh, I wonder how we know each other. And literally the card popped out of the deck. It said Egypt. And I, we, we both were like, oh. And so the reason that I, you know, that we both were like, you know, this is insane is because even, you know, long before we were ever kind of connected to the spiritual practices that we are now, um, she had gone to a past life progressionist. And, you know, in her, in her vision that she saw, she saw herself as a black man. She was pulling a goat from behind her. She was on a beach and then to her right was the ocean and then to the left was like a sheer rock wall. But she could tell she was like, it was like a desert beach. And so we were like, holy shit, like things are kind of piecing together. And the card that kept popping out after that was the card baby. And so I then realized that um, she was the person who basically took my baby after I escaped from the desert to, you know, basically not be punished for sleeping with someone and getting pregnant as a priestess. Um, and, you know, explains also why in my current life, I'm very afraid of large open spaces, like looking out onto the ocean scares the crap out of me. Um, looking out into just empty blank spaces just makes me, it, it just gives me such anxiety. I'm like, okay, now I get it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that in between our human lives, we experience a kind of break in between, and then we kind of reflect and then move on into our next lives and then kind of repeat the pattern until we're done. Mm -hmm. And being, uh, and, and uh, who knows what that next thing will be? Exactly. It's like, who, who the hell knows, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was interesting considering um my feelings that I was always a woman because I was like I was like why would I decide to be um a gay black man in the time that I am now and I picked up a book <clears throat> my, my friend you know gave it to me not by coincidence but he gave it to me and it was called The Journey of Souls and it talked about um a clinical kind of he he, he was he was a past life regressionist a psychotherapist and um his specialty was in regression but specific but specifically um, his gift was for, um, I guess, past life progressions. But no, he was, yeah, no, he was, yeah, it was past lives, but then he did, uh, he, he was able to dig a little bit deeper and um, go into um, lives in between lives. And so that, that's kind of um, what it's called. It's called the case study of life, of lives between lives. And it was just really incredible because a lot of the things that he was describing were things that I've thought of already or things that I've kind of experienced on my own, but just didn't have the vocabulary or the understanding, but I was like, holy shit, like this is, um, it was really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'm totally optimistic, you know. Um, I think, I, 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 I think that, you know, even the things in our lives that seem 
um, insurmountable and are, and you know are rightfully terrible and terrifying. Um, I think that even in the midst of you know war or anything terrible, there's, there's always um, something that blooms out of that. And it, it's gonna it's gonna seem so cheesy, but I love the movie Mulan. And um, you know <laughs> the scene where um, the dad says the greatest no the, the the most beautiful flower blooms out of adversity, and um, that that line always stuck with me because I'm I'm very much a believer in the idea that you know no matter the circumstances and and no matter where you are in life, there's always something that can be pulled out of the rubble of whatever you're going through. Um, that's beautiful. And, you know, I, I, I kind of applied that philosophy to the situation with the abusive relationship. I applied that to my career where I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Um, you know, I've applied it in so many ways that have kind of helped me stay afloat. So, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic, despite the fact that, you know, we have a Cheeto for president, but that's not here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've been talking for what, like an hour and a half, something like that. And uh, like that, yeah. we've yeah, yeah. covered a lot of ground and uh, we've talked about some really cool stuff. I really dig it. Uh, and this is definitely going to be a conversation that I'll, I'll enjoy listening to again. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to give yeah. you the floor. I want to give you the last few minutes, last few moments to talk directly to the audience whether it is to um, somebody who has connected with your work and really digs it once is like, oh, what's this, what's this Rashad actually like? Or, you know, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's um, Rashad in the future or maybe it's Rashad in a future life, you know, whatever, whoever, whoever you're talking to because this, myster- myster- this weird uh, device of the internet and technology allows for uh, people to listen for quite some time in the future. So I want you to, keep, to give you the last few minutes, moments uh, to, to speak to the audience directly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to speak to the people who are at the precipice of change, but are afraid to take that next step off. Um, so, you know, for all of you who are kind of like on the edge of their dreams and um, are very afraid to take that lead, um, take, that, take that next step past their comfort, um, I will let you know that you know, where, where you're comfortable, the ground is not fertile. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, when we get stuck in a sense of comfort, there's no growth because growth comes out of us being willing to step past our comfort zone and being willing to step past um, what, what makes us, you know, kind of complacent. And so I want to challenge you in the audience um, and anybody who's listening to really um, take that leap past that infertile ground and, and, and really take that step into the unknown because the unknown is where you're forced to, to make change and where you're forced to adapt and where you're forced to become, to, to excel at whatever you're doing because you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, the process of not knowing is just so important because, you know, we can't know everything. And in those times where you don't know, that's when you grow the most. And that's where you find the richest rewards because you're now, you're, you're, you're now relying on faith. And faith is just, you know, it, it's, it's very cliche again, but faith allows you to move past and move into such beautiful opportunities that you would not have imagined in your comfort zone.
So uh, yeah, take that next step. Take take the next step over the grass. <laughs> Do it. All right, Rashad, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. Oh yeah, I did. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Eugene. <laughs> no problem. This has been Rashad Malik Davis on Death.